may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. I was in, under the impression that Steve Reck was going to be here. As, as you know, Steve's father did pass away um, a few days ago. The viewing is going to be tomorrow night, Monday night, 6 to 10, in Binghamton. We will put that out on the uh, prayer chain. What did I just say? Excuse me, 6 to 8, yeah. I had 6 to 8 in my mind, I'm saying 6 to 10. 6 to 8 uh, in Binghamton, and then is it 11 o'clock is the service? On Tuesday. So 6 to 8 is the viewing on Monday night, and then the uh, service is uh, 11 o'clock, Again, in Binghamton, um, and we can give you that information if you would like. Now, I also say that for this reason. Um, I know the last time I went to a funeral up in the Canandaigua area, there was all these people that ended up driving separately because we didn't carpool. But if you would like to carpool with us, let us know, okay? If you would like to go with us, uh, myself, I know the Stefflers are going, the Bakers are going, but if you want to go Monday night, 6 o'clock, we'll be leaving here right around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, tomorrow afternoon. Uh, by the way, we're taking the church van and maybe some other vehicles. So, uh, boy, that's a scary thought, isn't it, church van? Um, but if you would like to uh, travel with us, please let, my, let me know right after the service. Like I said, we'll leave around 4, try to get there around 6. What is it? Put us, puts us back here around 9 o'clock. Uh, also, if you're interested in going to the uh, service, 11 o'clock on Tuesday, there again, if some other ones, I know the stewards are saying they might go on Tuesday. If that's the case, again, carpool. So let us know. Let us know. Did you have anything else to say, Mike? Okay. Um, I want to make sure I got all that out. Nehemiah 6. Now again, this is uh, we're going to be closing down our, our mini-series, mini-study on on the opposition that Nehemiah had to endure. And we've been seeing this opposition in different forms. It's been interesting. I've never, re- never realized up to the point of studying this uh, how much opposition Nehemiah had to endure for those 52 days. By the way, you say 52 days, because if you go to chapter 6, verse 52, uh, 15, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month in 52 days. So all this happened within that time frame. A lot of, a lot of opposition. We saw the opposition start from Sanballat and Tobiah and the rest of them in chapter 4, and you see the word we, us. What they were doing is they were trying to get the, the group that was working on the wall to be discouraged, uh, to be afraid, and therefore to stop the work. Chapter 4 is really about the, uh, the enemy's opposition to the group. And then chapter 5, we saw that the opposition really turned just to the Jews, more particularly to the uh, rich individuals who were charging exorbitant uh, rates of interest, usury, to the poor. There again, a second form of opposition from within. By the time you get to chapter 6, now the, the enemy changes the strategy to just to attacking Nehemiah. And you see that because of how many times he uses the word I. Chapter 6, verse 1. I had built the wall. I had not set up the doors. 
Uh, verse 3, and I sent messengers, and I am doing a great work. By the way, that is not because he's proud. He's trying to show that the opposition went from the group to now they were pointed right, uh, the guns as it were, were pointed right at him. And you, find, and you see that continually throughout the thing. He's, he's saying, this is what I had to endure as a leader, as an individual, against Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem and all the rest. So again, it's, uh, chapter 6 is really just about him. They were trying to destroy the leader of the group. And we started out in verses 1 to 4, we see opposition by intrigue. Because they had sent him, um, they had sent to me saying, come and let us meet together. That's uh, what, verse uh, 2. But, it, but he, he, he knows what's happening. You know, they want to have him go to Ono, which is seven miles away. And, but it says, but they intended to do me harm. See, this is opposition by intrigue. They're going to draw him away and then either imprison him or kill him. Okay, do him harm. Um, does that definitely mean they were trying to kill him? Well, maybe just trying to kidnap him. And so it says, I sent messengers and said, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. I mean, they kept after it. They were persistent four times in this way. They, and I kept answering, no, in the same way. No, no, I can't come down. I'm doing a great work. Again, not proud. He's just saying, listen, they were after me. So that's opposition by intrigue. And then last week we started, but we never finished, opposition by slander. Because it says in the same way, verse 5, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me, but this time with an open letter in his hand. An open letter. By the way, you say, well, why an open letter? Well, it, it, had, it really had to do with how they were trying to portray Nehemiah. <clears throat> One author said this, An open letter is the height of indignity. Sam Ballot knows that the contents of the letter will become public property. In other words, public knowledge. The charge of treason, because you see that in verse uh, 6 and 7, because what they were doing is saying, basically, uh, you are building the wall because you want to you rebel against Persia. And not only that, but you want to become king. And not only that, but you've hired other prophets to say the same uh, prophecy. Like, in other words, God, Jehovah, has, has called you to be king of Jerusalem. And so, that's why they sent this letter. With, it was not sealed because then the servant, I mean, it was intended that he would read it and then there would be talk. Talk, 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 talk. Oh, did you hear? Nehemiah's building the wall to be, rebel against the king of Persia. So it's, it's really opposition by slander or opposition by innuendo or the rumor mill, as it were. The charge of treason, even if unfounded and proven to be untrue, would be sufficient to impugn Nehemiah's motives. This, pass, this part of the passage, the second attack on him personally, was attack on his motives, on his motivation. Oh, you're trying to be king. Oh, you're trying to be the top dog in this area. So it was supposed to go against his motives, which cast aspiration... Aspersion, excuse me, on his integrity and undermine his influence. The whole thing was, see, once you go after a leader's motivation, then it just cuts down his, on his influence. You know, do you know what he's really like? <laughs> you know what really his motivation, you know what really his affections, you know what his real intentions are here? Actually, this author, let me read the last, the, the next little bit, because I think it brings out some things. He says this, this attack on Nehemiah takes advantage of an important psychological principle. That is this. People are always quick to believe the worst about others. 
Isn't that true? <laughs> you get a little tidbit and it's so easy to just suck it in. Think, if you will, of how quickly a scandal spreads through a church. The faintest hint of an indiscreet behavior and the person concerned is pronounced guilty. To malign Nehemiah's motives is, therefore, very easy. The libel may be totally false. In other words, the lie may be totally false. Yet it is impossible for the victim of such slander ever to clear his name with everyone who gives ear to the reports. No, that is so true. See, it goes out, it goes out, it goes out. Like last week I said, it's like a person putting a feather at the, at the doorstep of each person in, at, in the house of the village, and then you know the, the wind comes through, and then trying to find all the feathers, you can't go back. It's just very, very... So that's what they were trying to do. They were, they were giving out the rumor. They were setting it up so that people would talk... Like it says in verse 6 and 7, oh, you're trying to become king. You're trying to rebel against the, the king of Persia. Oh, you're even getting prophets, people that are supposed to be on God's side, on your side so that you can accomplish this. That's rumor. That's why last week, I didn't, I think I, I, I named it this, but like if you go to Ephesians 4 where it says put off uh, bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor, clamor, it's talk, 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 talk. And slander. Put all those out. That, that's what I would call the, the dung of words. <laughs> because it comes from, well, it comes from that bitterness. Why is it that a person would talk such way? And we were talking about this actually down in ABF. Um, the word bitterness there in Ephesians talks about smoldering resentment smoldering, it's there, and it creates those other things, that, bitter, or that anger and wrath and uh, clamor and uh, slander and just all the evil speaking. By the way, there was smoldering resentment with these guys because what was going to happen is this. As Jerusalem became strong, their influence in Samaria was going to become weak. As Jerusalem became the focal point of trade, Samaria was going to lose their ability to make money. Do you see what the point is? Sanballat and Tobiah was from the upper part of Samaria. They wanted to keep the trade, the money, the power there. As this came in, and Nehemiah was building a wall, now all of a sudden they were going to decrease. See, there was a, a resentment. Know this, that when you hear a gossip, what you're hearing, you're really seeing something. You're seeing what's in their heart. Because remember what Matthew says? What the mouth speaks comes from the heart. So again, these rumors, these lies and inaccuracies, these, I, I like, uh, no, I don't like, but it's interesting how it says, it's reported among the nations. It's reported. Like, there's no source. It's just, you know, it's like when a person might say to me, you know, I've had this, like, John, no one trusts you. Something of that nature. No one really wants your leadership. You know, just generalities. Nobody, nobody wants the, the leadership of your church, the elders. <laughs> um, they're against you in your community. It's just lies that, as Proverbs says, sows discord. That's why, as last week, First Timothy says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. 
Why? Because a leader, a leader especially in the church. See, it doesn't, I'm not, this is not a leader in the world because a, a leader in the world can have really pathetic character. We've seen it over the last few years, right? I mean, think about who's our, who our leaders are. Wow. You know, most of them should be in jail. Right? I mean, if they didn't have money and power, they would be. I shouldn't say most. Maybe. Well, you don't want to make generalities. Then you fall into. A lot of them should. A lot of them should, really. Well, that's not the point. The the point I'm trying to make is this. See, when I say leader, don't think secular. I'm talking religious because, because a religious an elder, a deacon, a um, teacher, uh, a godly one. What, it has to have fit First Timothy, you know, either 1 to 7, 8 through 13. Uh, I mean, there is the, the quality of your life, your integrity, is what true Christian leadership is built on. You destroy that, you destroy the foundation. So be careful. That's why... Paul is very clear in Timothy. You don't receive an accusation unless there's a couple witnesses. I mean, you better make sure you better make sure that it is very solid. None of this generality stuff. What I find interesting when it comes to gossip, when it comes to people confronting others, <clears throat> so often this is the truth. People see in others what they've already seen in themselves. I've experienced this many times. I've, I've experienced this in my own life, but I've also experienced from the hands of others. And I'm only saying me because I'm, <laughs> I'm me, so I only know. But I've watched people who, oh, you know, well, you're just really proud. But if you looked at their life, you'd say, yeah, you really are too. <laughs> people see in others what they already have seen in themselves. It's just, that's just how it is. That's the nature of it. So again, be careful. Because the human tendency to believe the worst sadly persists even in the church. And you say, really? I mean, maybe it's just this 21st century mentality. Or maybe it just happens now. I was uh, reading a book about the China Inland Mission. Uh, This was a mission started by Hudson Taylor back in the 1800s, 1865. And this is what's written about it. Discontent, rancorous members of the infant China Inland Mission. So they had just begun nearly destroyed the mission by their false reports and complaints about their saintly leader, Hudson Taylor. Hudson's wife, Maria, now this is the wife writing this, indignantly wrote to the wife of one of her husband's accusers, reminding her of this out of 1 Timothy chapter 5. So this is the woman, the wife of Hudson Taylor, writing this note to her. I'm aware that your husband, because he's the accuser, has received serious misrepresentations to call them nothing worse. Would it not have been the right course before allowing these to affect his conduct to have endeavored to ascertain that the the other side of the question against an elder, and talking about 1 Timothy, and such my dear husband, she's saying my dear husband, surely is to the rest of our party, Receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And then she finishes, I am more intimately acquainted than anyone else with the whole tenor of my beloved husband's private and social walk. And that walk is in all meekness and forbearance, in all purity, 
in all sincerity of purpose and all singleness of mind are I, end quote. But then this is the addendum. Unfortunately, Maria's scriptural admonition was not heeded until considerable pain and damage was inflicted on Hudson Taylor's family, end quote. Yeah, it can be totally false, but it can still do a lot of damage. So again, be very, very careful. Be very, very careful how you receive an accusation. Make sure it's by the witness of two or three. Or to say it this way, never listen to gossip about leaders or even to a serious accusation if it only comes from one person. All charges must be substantiated by two or three, and I'm going to underline this, responsible people if it is to be considered. End quote. But you say, well, maybe it's just, well, the mission, that was an anomaly. You know, that was just an oddity. Well, I went back a little bit farther to John Calvin. Remember John Calvin? He was a a great reformer. This is what he wrote, reflecting on the pastoral experience in Geneva, Switzerland. Quote, as soon as any charge is made against ministers of the word, it is believed. As surely and as firmly as if it had been already proved. This happens not only because of a higher standard of integrity is required for leaders, according to 1 Timothy 3, but because Satan makes most people, in fact nearly everyone, gullible so that without investigation they eagerly condemn their pastors and their elders whose good name they ought to be defending. None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers, end quote. Thank you, John. Thank you for writing that 500 plus years ago. (laughs) I say that because, to be honest with you, something like that's been happening to the leadership of this church. I'll leave it at that. I would ask this, that if, if you hear of a slanderous, gossipy, whatever, that you would just say, you know what, I don't want to hear it. Is it verified? Go to the elders, right? I mean, that's why in Titus 3 it says, as for a person who stirs up division, or the New American says, reject uh, a factious man, that's the word division, after warning him one and two times, have nothing to do with him. The New American says this, reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted, he's warped, he's sinning, and he's self-condemned. And I look up the word, what does it mean to be factious? And it means this, a factious person will not submit to the word or to the leaders, the godly leaders in the church. They won't do it. He or she is a law to himself and has no concern for spiritual truth or unity. It's, again, um, I would say this, within about, in less than a month, some of the things that some of you have heard will be laid out, okay? Within a month, will be laid out. It'll be clear. A month from now, clear. But be very careful. Don't just, just if, if you know what I'm talking about, some of you say, what are you even talking about? Well, don't worry about it. If you don't know, praise God. <laughs> but if you think, you know what, I've heard, because I've heard some things that were, very, very malicious and very, very much untrue. And at the moment, we're not going to address it. But remember, 
there are people that want to, what does it say? A factious person will not submit to the word and they will not submit to godly leaders in the church. They are a law to themselves. They don't care about truth and they don't care about unity. But you know what the really good truth is? God knows. <laughs> Isn't that a great truth? I love that. No matter what happens here. But, you know, you, you could just walk away. But the problem is this. It can do a lot of damage, just like Hudson Taylor's family. In the process, it could be proved wrong, but it could do a whole lot of damage in the process. So be careful. Now, Nehemiah was hit with these untruths. How does he respond? Verse 8. I sent to him and said, no such things as you are, have been saying have been done. You know, he, he, he basically called them liars. He denied the charge, which I find instructive because sometimes we walk away, we don't even deny the charge. No, no, you're wrong. And then he spoke the truth, verse, second part of verse 8, you are inventing them out of your own mind. It's a figment of your own. So he spoke truth. He put the blame where it belonged. You're doing this, you are inventing them. And then what did he do? Lord, strengthen my hands. He went back to work. <laughs> he went back to accomplishing what God had told him to do. So again, that is opposition by slander, by innuendo, by the rumor mill. Uh, I was thinking, okay, now let's see this. They were, that would have been easy. The first opposition, just come over to Ono. That was pretty easy. Just send them a few letters. This is a little bit more complex. He had to send an open letter expecting it to get out. The rumor mill started. It would have to get all the way back to Persia. And now if Persia came against Jerusalem, they would have totally destroyed everything. So this is a little bit more complex scheme to try to destroy the leader and then what he, what was, called, what he was called to do. Let's look at the last one, opposition by deceitfulness. I say last because once we get to verse 15, the opposition, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's, he, he, he's given us the picture. Starting in verse 15, really is connected with chapter 7. So we're only trying to get to verse 15. So in uh, verse 10, we see opposition by deceitfulness, by treachery, by intimidation. And let's look at the problem. Verse 10, now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, he went into the house of Shemaiah. By the way, Shemaiah was a prophet, a priest. We know he's a prophet because he sought to prophesy, at least he thought he was. And he was a priest, he was living at the temple. And apparently this man was a trusted friend. Because the way it's set up in the text is like, you know, I went to the house. Like, this is a man that I knew, this is a man that I've you know, probably broke bread uh, with. And he must have invited Nehemiah to visit him. Again, he was someone that Nehemiah trusted up to this point. Probably up to this point, Nehemiah would have called him a friend. At his home. But, but, but notice what it says. But he, he was confined to his home. He was confined. Now, was that because of ill health? I mean, could he, you know, maybe something like that? Was it a vow? Most likely, he was confined to his home because it was part of the plot. <laughs> it was part of the trick. Because what he's going to tell Nehemiah is that they're out to kill you. And actually, because I'm around you, they're also out to kill me. So I'm here. I'm hiding. Okay, so he, he's confined. He, he wasn't going to go out in the open. He was in danger. He was fearful. That's the kind of the, the picture that you get. By the way, we find in a, in a, a couple of verses that he was hired by the enemy to put up this plot, this trick. 
But then he says this. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us, let us meet in the house of God. What is he, what is he talking about? Let me uh, read one little part here. This is intimidation. Nehemiah, of course, was a man of strong biblical principles. His life was governed by the scriptures. Its precepts regulated his conduct and formed an inward standard which brought all else into conformity to that truth. Now, that's who we know of Nehemiah. So let's see how he responds when he's told, you know what, run for your life, hide in the temple, they won't get you. By the way, the word temple... Well, let me read the rest of it. It says, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now again, a, he was not a priest. Nehemiah was not a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. That's the most important part. And it was, it was uh, wrong according to Scripture for anyone other than a priest to go into the temple. Now, uh, a layman could could go to the brazen altar, which was outside of the temple. It was within the curtain, but it wasn't in the inner or inner, inner uh, the most holy. Okay, I could go where the brazen altar was, but I could not, I, go into the temple if I'm a layman. And so what he's asking him to do is to go against what God's word says for his own safety's sake. Do you see what he said? This is, what, this is what's important here. They tried to get Nehemiah to go to Ono. Now, four times, no. They tried to spread slander against the guy. You're just making it up. It's a figment of your own imagination. Lord, strengthen my hands, got back to work. Now you know what they try to do? They try to make the guy sin. Because if you can get the leader or the leaders to sin, then something happens. You'll see that in a moment. So what he's, what he's and, and again, he's coming as one of God's. He's a priest. It's almost like, uh, you know, the Spirit of the Lord said to me, you know. I mean, we have crazy stuff. People walking around speaking, saying, I am speaking for God. You must do this. That's how this guy was saying to Nehemiah. And yet Nehemiah was able to see through this. Because again, to go into the holy place was against God's law. Remember uh, in Numbers, excuse me, in 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah violated this command, went into the holy place, and he was judged with what? you remember what he was judged with? Leprosy. In fact, and that was grace on God's part, because he should have been killed right there. So again, they tried to get him to sin. That's what the whole thing is about. Trying to get him to sin. Let's see what the response is. But I said, verse 11, should such a man as I run away? He's not saying that in arrogant. He's saying, listen, it's showing his courage. No, I, I, should I run away? I've been called by God to do a great work. Should I run away? So this is consistent courage. The second thing we see is he's determined to be obedient. He must not sin. Second part of verse 11, and, and what man such as I, in other words, what layman, I'm not a priest, I'm not a high priest, I'm just a layman, and what, what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. Which brings up an interesting point for us. How carefully do you guard your integrity? 
How carefully do you guard being obedient to God's Word? Because here, it could have been life or death, and yet he said, I must not go into there, because that is against God's law. He showed courage, but he also showed courage that was willing to be obedient, even if it meant his own death. Or you can say it in reverse order. Are you willing to sin to get what you want? Many of us at times are willing to sin to get what we want. And yet for him, he could say, well, I want safety, but I'm not willing to sin for it. I want to be safe. I don't want to die, but I'm not, I'm not willing to sin for it. I think of uh, Hebrews chapter, um, I just thought of this, but it, I think it... Verse chapter three or chapter twelve, Hebrews twelve, verse three. Consider him who endured such sinners uh, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, we should be willing to even die rather than sin. So he had courage. He had obedience. In verse 12, we find out he was, he was able to discern the deceit. You know, again, because this was a priest, it appeared to be coming as an oracle of God, run into the holy place. And yet verse 12 says, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And you say, well, how did he know? Because Nehemiah understood the scriptures. He understood the Old Testament. He understood the uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He understood what God said, that no layman should ever go into the holy place. And he knew that God was holy and God was consistent. And what God says to do in one spot, he would never then say not to do in another. And so he said, no, I must. Even if it means my own death, I will not break God's law. And yet Nehemiah triumphed, not by breaking God's law to escape assassination, but by keeping it. He was obedient and God preserved him. I love that. Just be obedient. We, we get, you know, rationalized. Well, I need to, you know, I got to... No, no, just be obedient. Show courage by being obedient. So he discerned that it wasn't an oracle from God. He also discerned that, again, what God would, would not tell him to run and stop the work. Look at verse 13. It says, For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way. Act in what way? That I would be running in this direction, hiding, cowering, and the work would then stop. So he discerned that what God wanted him to do. And then finally he discerned that, again, no true prophet would ask, something, uh, ask someone to violate God's law. It was very clear in Numbers 3, verse 10, 18, verse 7, don't go into the holy place. See, that would have caused him to sin. That would have caused him to break God's law. And therefore, look at the last part of verse 13, and sin. See, if I had done that, he says, I would have sinned. Okay, well, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, so be it. I got saved, right? Physically. Well, keep reading verse 13. And sin, and so they would give me a bad name. And, what? In order to taunt me. That, that word taunt means to reproach. And it's in the PL, which is the uh, intensive. 
That would have given them so much fodder. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine what would have been said if Nehemiah had ran to the temple? Look at that sinner. Look at that coward. Look at him. He called himself a man of God. And just because he was threatened, he ends up there. Now, again, the enemy sent the priest to get the guy to do this. Now, by the way, all that's washed away at that point when you're reproaching the person, right? How could you ever think about following him? Do you see what the whole storyline would be from that point on? If Nehemiah had ran to the holy place, he sinned. Sure, he confessed his sin, but look at who, he, who you're talking about. And the, and the project literally would have stopped right there. You're going to follow him? You're really going to follow him? That would have gone all the way around Jerusalem, right? So what does he do? Instead, he prays, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. <laughs> By the way, do you have any of those Sanballats and Tobias in your life? It is easy to read this. It is hard to do. And we've got to be brought back to right here. You have someone taunting you? Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did and also to the prophetess. Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So, I mean, there was a group here, right? But, so the point is, though, just, Lord, you take care of it. What's the next verse? So the wall was finished. <laughs> Did you see the point? He doesn't give a lot of detail, but he's saying, listen, they tried to destroy the group, the weave, chapter 4, didn't work. God was faithful. They tried to destroy within, getting the rich to overcharge the poor. That didn't work. They actually came to repentance. Then they tried to destroy me through three different means. You know, just intrigue, intimidation, innuendo. Didn't work. And the wall was built. By the way, who do you think, God, or who do you think Nehemiah would have given glory to at that point? Oh, he did it. Oh, I'm just his instrument. But what do we find in him? His courage was such, he would not sin. Did not, even if it meant his death, he would not sin. I find it so interesting, all the work, all the work that the enemy did to try to destroy this work. Do you, you see this? That's why I spent, what, four weeks on this? They were hitting this group of people to try to stop the wall from all different angles that you would not even think about. You just think one attack, or oh, they give up. No, no, all kinds of attacks. You can transfer that principle into, uh, into the church. This church and any other church, Satan will use many methods and many ways and many deceptions and many uh, wiles of the devil to try to destroy God's work, both in your life and in our, in, our, in our lives, right? So just be on guard. Be very much on guard. Let me just wrap this up quickly. So what was the secret of his success? Well, again, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just going to take all the chapters that we've done up to this point not extensive, you could get much more extensive, but let me just give you five simple things. And I'm going to add, I'm going to transpose on these five three key words. They all start with C, actually four in the end. The first of all, the secret of his success was, and you don't have this in your outline, but you can write it down, character. Character, you see that in the first one. Nehemiah's closeness to God, his prayerfulness. You say character, what do you mean? In other words, his communion with God produced a godly life. That's his character. That's his integrity. That's his closeness. And you see it over and over again with his prayers. 
Chapter 1 is a prayer, chapter 2, verse 4, 2, verse 20, chapter 4, verse 9, 420, 519. Over and over again, as, as we said before, uh, sometimes they're lengthy prayers, sometimes they're popcorn prayers. We've just seen two today. Verse 9, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. That's a prayer. And then, verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God. That's a prayer. That's the first thing about Nehemiah. We see over and over again his character. And by the way, truth was the essence of his, of his character. His character was built on the truth of who God was and what God's word said. And our character should be that. See, it's not just character for character's sake. We need to have our character based on what God says we ought to be. And also, our character should stand on the foundation of who God is. Right? I wish I could, you know, God, yes, you know, you'll protect, you're strong, you're almighty. One man said this, a man has not more character than he can command in a crisis. A man has not more character than he can command in a crisis, end quote. What you are in a crisis really shows what type of character you have. Nehemiah, what did he do? He kept running to God. He kept running to God. Just the fact that he would go to the king of Persia and say, can I go back? That's running to God. It says, and he prayed. (laughs) So again, he was able to persevere because of his character. That's the first seed. The second one is confidence. Character leads to confidence. The next three things on your outline are are all about confidence. First of all, his ability to focus on the task. Focus on the task. But see, in chapter 2, verse 18, it says, I told them, that's the people, this was as they were getting ready to build, uh, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king. In other words, God was even working through the king. See, he was confident, and because he was confident, he was able to stay focused. The problem in America is we have too many options. Isn't that true? Eh, we're doing this, we get excited about this for today, and that, you know, and option, option, option. It's hard to stay focused. By the way, you know what a Christian should stay focused on? Whatever you do, word or deed, do all for the glory of God. Which is being made into the image of Christ. What did Paul say in Philippians? This one thing I do. Right? Forgetting the things that are behind. Pressing on. I mean, pressing on. What do you mean, pressing on? What do you, towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on to be more like Christ. No matter what you're doing in this world, I trust that your ultimate goal is to glorify God by becoming more like Jesus Christ. By the way, if you have that, even when you go through trials, you know what the goal is. What is the goal? It's not about me winning, losing, safety. It's about me becoming more like Christ. And sometimes God will take you and and not drop you, place you (laughs) into the pressure cooker sometimes that pressure cooker you know what the name of that is marriage no I love my wife dearly I'm saying yours not mine see if you just laughed and I, I, I identified you now maybe it's raising children 
Maybe it's dealing with other relatives. Maybe it's a health issue. I don't know what. But the point is, is we know what the goal is. See, the point is, the goal is to be like Christ. So, okay. Stay on task. He stayed on task when it came to the wall. He also had confidence of his calling and ability. Again, the hand of my God was upon me. He knew not only the direction, but he knew that he was part of the plan. See, it's one thing to say, yeah, build the wall. I'm not sure he's going to do it. No, build the wall and I'm part of the plan. I know my part. We, should, we have a part. And then finally, he had discernment. He was confident in the word. He was able to detect in every, uh, every subterfuge, as it were, of the enemy. He knew, he, because he knew, he was confident in what the Word of God said. He knew what Leviticus said. He knew what Numbers said. He knew what uh, Exodus said about not entering the Holy of Holies, or the Holy Place. Not, that wasn't even the Holy of Holies. That was just the Holy Place, just going through the first set of curtains. So, he was confident. So, his character produced confidence, which then... Next C, produce courage. Sometimes we want to have courage for courage's sake. No, no. He was courageous because he had character and he was confident in what God had called him to do. He was confident in his God. Therefore, he could have courage. Verse 11, but I said, should such a man as I run? I know who I am. I'm just a, I'm just a servant. I'm just a layman. But I don't, want to, I don't want to go against God. And what man sh- such as I could go into the temple and live? I, the point is this. You know how you get great courage? By having a great God. We talked a few weeks ago about the fear of the Lord. If your view of God is this, then your view of man will be this. And they will be, they will be proportionate. As your view of God becomes bigger, your view of man will become smaller. Because you're focusing on something. Someone. See, he's not, he wasn't afraid. It doesn't mean that you never get fear, uh, have fear. See, courage is not the absence of fear, absence of fear, but it's the disregard for it. Why? Because even though there could be anxiousness there, what happens? I, the fear of God is bigger. I mean, there still might be some. But God, and therefore I want, to, I want to please him. I will not sin even if it means my death. Because his fear of the Lord, his fear of God was so great. <clears throat> you know what else courage does? It doesn't allow us to uh, get paralyzed and stop. It keeps us moving forward. So, character produced confidence. Confidence produced courage and it kept him moving forward in verse 15 52 days the wall what was considered to be impossible was accomplished with the gate set and everything else can you imagine wow oh that must have been he just must have had it kind of easy he must have been an extraordinary he must have not had problems do you see why god opened to us everything that has happened in his life from chapter one two three this is how i had to deal with the people four five six three of the six chapters talks about opposition that he had why would he have just why would he have that much information why would god put that much information in the book of Nehemiah to tell us because it was like it was a miracle to happen 52 days because we could maybe get the idea well it must have been an easy road it must have been a lot easier than it really no 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 it was because he had faith and that faith produced character and confidence 
and courage. By the way, the last C is this. And when that's all happening, it produces consistency. Right? So you're courageously consistent. Some people are not consistent. They're up and down. Praise the Lord. I fear, I mean, I fear Him. And then three days later, they're in the doldrums and depressed. And no, 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 no. We want to be consistent. So it's got to be built on character, confidence, and courage. If you like that, it's like Proverbs says, the righteous are as bold as a what? Lion. Right? The righteous, those who have character, are as bold, that's courage, as a lion. By the way, if you have secret sin, you won't, you won't have courage. Know this, that if you have secret sin, not because someone else finds it, I'm just saying because God knows, right? Deal with it. If you want to be as bold as a lion, you've got to be righteous. And so as we end this service and end this section, really, I'm going to ask you this. Are you, are you really walking with the Lord? Are you really walking with the Lord? The things that He has told you to do, are you, have, have they been placed in your life? Or are you, i go back to that word bitterness. Is there smoldering resentment? Is there something in your life and you're not willing to release? You are not willing to release. And your life keeps going like this. You keep getting stumped. <laughs> you keep getting stumped. Because God says, listen, you've got character. You've you got to have consistency. But the consistency comes when you walk with me. I've got to become big. And you may say, you know what? I know exactly what it is. I keep thinking about this. This is the thing. I heard a guy say this this week. It says, what you fear points directly to your idol. That's pretty profound. person says, I fear getting up in front of people speaking. Why? Why would you fear that? Because what would they think? That's what you're living for. You want to have praise of man. Do you see what I'm saying? But that happens in all kinds of ways. What you fear points directly to your idol. I think about money all the time. Why? I've got to have security. Why? Because I don't tr- trust God. What you fear points directly to your idol. Use that as you evaluate your life as God does. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Or singing, excuse me.